0: This is the Upgraded Life Podcast, Season 3, Episode 16. And in this show, I'm going to bring you a conversation with Robert Day. Robert has a personal mission to make foster care obsolete. He's got an incredible personal story to share. Hey, I'm a Gen Xer. I was raised in the 80s and 90s, so I do believe that the children are our future. If you have that belief, too, then this is going to be a great show for you because Robert Day has dedicated his life to showing how communities and systems can best support children who need care outside of their original families. So let's get to it. Let's buckle up and go for a ride on the Upgraded Life Podcast. Hello, thanks for tuning in to the Upgraded Life Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nick Sotello. The Upgraded Life is my personal project where I help people realize and reach their potential. I've been a professional helper for 20 years. Here's what I'm convinced of. The life that you have right now and the life that you want tomorrow is a product of your personal mindset, mission, and movement. Each episode of the Upgraded Life podcast is going to give you something that you can do as soon as the episode is over to upgrade your personal mindset. Your mindset informs your mission. Your mission tells you how to move every single day. And together, that is The Upgraded Life. I am here with Robert Day. I'm excited for another episode of The Upgraded Life podcast. And Robert and I are going to dive into all things foster care and the world mm-hmm. of foster care. And there is nobody better to speak on it than Robert Day because he has been in foster care his entire life, one way or another. So. He is an expert, he is, has an organization called Patrick Henry Family Services, and he's written books, he's an author, he's got higher ed degrees, he has pretty much dedicated his whole life to this thing that we call foster care, and I'm excited to learn about what he's been doing and his view on it. For those that have been following the show will know that I have had a front row seat to the foster care system as well. In my background in youth corrections, and the the high majority of of the young men that I work with came to us in that pipeline through foster care into the general justice system. So I have my take, observations, and conclusions about it as well. So I'm excited to see how our notes and observations compare, and I'm also excited to see how we differ on some things. So Robert, thank you so much for being
1: here. I appreciate the invitation. I get to talk about my favorite subject. Absolutely. All right. So let's start talking about it. I,
0: I think people have an idea of what foster care is, but I like to start from the ground up and build with, upon our concepts and definitions. So I'll throw mm-hmm. it to you uh, for somebody who maybe thinks that they know what foster care is and maybe they do know, but how do you describe what foster care is from your experience?
2: Yeah, And people need to recognize from a historical standpoint, foster care is what replaced the old orphanage system. And so we all have these images in our mind of of children who had nowhere to go for various reasons that they were cared for in the orphanage. And so the movement back then to, to get rid of the orphanage, the answer was foster care, right? That children don't belong in institutions they belong with families and so foster care became the national response to that and now it is the kind of official government policy for that it's also the cousin of social welfare because many of those kids who were in orphanages were from single parent homes and moms just couldn't afford to feed them for whatever reason and so a lot of those orphans weren't Maybe what a lot of people think of orphans, but foster care, particularly since welfare is now keeping most kids with family because of, of a mother's subsidy is what they called it in the original early days. Foster care is really now more
1: dedicated to caring for the children who are being abused, neglected, and exploited. And
2: they need a safe place to be, and institutional care is not the best place.
1: Foster families was the is the idea. Great, thanks for that intro. And I love that you started from
0: where the concept emerged from. So, when was that time frame? From when we, as a society, started moving away from the orphanage model to the foster care model? Yeah. So in in eighteen. Fifty-three. the very
2: first child abuse case was actually tried in New York City by the New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Wow. Uh, they found Mary Ellen Wilson, uh, who was being terribly abused and neglected by her caregiver. And, but the police wouldn't do anything. There were no laws protecting children in that time. But the uh, Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals had won several court cases to protect horses, particularly from being beaten and, and uh, neglected. And so, they managed to uh, take it to a court, and the court decided that Mary Ellen Wilson was, as a human being, part of the animal family and had the rights, at least, of an animal not to be beaten and neglected. And she was the first child who was protected by a court and the judge said something that every judge says since that time whenever a child is removed from a family he says I find it in her best interest to be removed from her family
0: and placed it in the care of others Yeah, I never have heard that story and I think that there's an overlap there because it's also in that same time frame where I think it was a little bit later though for juvenile criminal code to become a thing. Right. So there mm-hmm. was no, there was no code or there was no system at first to handle juvenile delinquency. And so it was just left up to whatever was determined was in the best interest. And so. Exactly. Yeah. And they were placed with adult yeah. prisoners in, the,
2: in adult jails at that time. Right.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the, uh, the facility that I worked at for a bulk of my career was called, is called McLaren Youth Correctional Facility original name is mclaren school for boys and so oh, that's what's yes. on all of the, the signage and the historical documents and whatnot but working farm type of a thing if you couldn't mm-hmm. if couldn't uh if your family couldn't afford you and or you found your way you go to mclaren and, and it was yeah. a working farm and learn life skills and whatnot and over time it became a varying degree of, of facility and When I had started, most people would have been in a correctional facility had just been installed. So it had only been up for four or five months by the time that I had gotten there. So from the 1850s till 1999, there was no fence on on this property. The concept of foster care was
2: actually was a concept created by Reverend Charles Lauren Grace, who was in the. Hell's Kitchen area of New York City and the orphanages there were full and there were all these children living on the streets. And so he conceived the concept of let's get these kids out of the city. And let's get them into families out west, farm families. And that started the orphan train movement. Wow. And so children were now being placed with families instead of institutions for the first time. And then from that, things like case management and Home visits and home uh, inspections grew out of that. And so by 1909, Teddy Roosevelt hosted the first White House conference on dependent children. And it was there that there was a national plan that orphanages would start stepping down and foster care would start rising up. And so each state eventually
1: signed on to that. And now, where we're at today. And what was the impetus for that? What was going on in the orphanages that people started thinking that we need to do something different? Yes.
2: There were several voices back then who were saying children belong in families, not in institutions. So it's interesting conversion. James West was a child who grew up in a. Washington, D.C. orphanage, and uh, James West would later become the chief Boy Scout. He would be the guy who really built the Boy Scout as the institution that we know it today. But <clears throat> he was part of the foster care movement. He was a big critic of, of orphanages as he grew up in one, and he was uh, helped D.C. get its very first playground. He was part of the playground movement. we got to remember, playgrounds were a new invention at the turn of the century. And they had a fundraising at the lawn of the White House, and that's where he met Teddy Roosevelt. And so later, he asked Teddy Roosevelt if if he would be the host of a conference on, on the care of dependent children. And uh, leaders, about 2,500 leaders from all over the country came, and uh, that's where they began to develop the plan. Orphanages would step down into what's later called children's homes. These big institutions became these little cottages, and house parents were hired instead of like a single lady who had a room full of kids. So it was a step down until the states could build this foster care yeah. system. So it's interesting that a, an orphan was the one who ended up being a big voice of that. But yeah. he once uh, he he wrote that uh, uh, why should children waste away in institutions when their families waiting for them to provide real love and
1: care. Yeah. So as you talk about that, I sift through my own history.
0: Of working at McLaren School for Boys in that mm-hmm. that language that you used was still part of the again the documents, the language, the vernacular. Mm-hmm. So we I worked in a cottage, right? We mm-hmm. had eight eight cottages in the area of the facility that I worked in. And there was remnants of house parents and people that had worked there before I could hear the stories of, of when house parents were a thing. And so when you mm-hmm. when you talk about that, I, I didn't obviously experience it directly, but the echoes of it were still there. So that's fascinating to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that probably where I was at, all of this model, exactly all the way through, mm-hmm. step by step. Yeah. And we have playgrounds in our facility too, right?
2: <laughs> yeah. It was all part of that New century and kind of a progressive movement. Lots of things were happening. People were opposing child labor. Right. So we got child labor laws. Playgrounds were being built. Free school movement, which we know today as public school. Right. Because before that school wasn't free unless your family could afford it. And so a lot of things converged and foster care was just one of the many things that came out of that but i think foster care has become now the issue and that foster care itself is a system that abuses and neglects
1: we've
2: we live in a nation where on average between 400 and 600 children die at the hands of their parents every year and that, that's a tragedy right so in response to that we're maintaining 400 to 600,000 children in foster care every year because we to try to keep kids safe. But we know kids are dying in foster care. Kids are being abused in foster care. They're being lost in foster care. And because of what we know now about trauma and the impact of childhood trauma and removing children
1: from families, those <clears throat> we've got to find a new movement, a new way to protect children but not let them get
2: swallowed up in this huge bureaucracy that's highly political with multiple billions of dollars flowing through the system with all the experts, making a pretty good living, managing these troubled kids. And you've been a part of that system. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been called the child welfare industrial complex. And it's so large and so massive and so powerful that those within the system can't think about
1: how can we do it differently or better. And, yeah, and, and so that, that's what and we've been trying to do here. Yeah. yeah, I love that. I don't know, we could go so many different directions here. We could. And I feel like I'm talking to a, a long-lost friend too. <laughs> but uh, I think we ought to just get right after it, that
0: why is this so important to you as an individual? This whole thing.
2: I was born in the system. My mom was 16 years old, was in custody of state of Tennessee when she was pregnant with me because of abuse that she experienced and uh, was placed in unwed mother's home as they were called back in that day. And so I was born in the system. in the custody of the state of Tennessee. My mom was placed in a foster home and she put me up for adoption originally. But when those foster parents learned I was free for adoption, they asked the state if they could adopt me. And so they placed me with the same foster parents where my mom was. And so that was the first two years of my life was in that foster home and potential adoption home. The, The adoption never took place. And so my mom aged out of the system. And she made a fateful decision that I've regretted my entire life. She took me with her, and I've often thought what life would have been like if I had been adopted by those first foster parents instead of by a, a poor young single mom who had dropped out of high school from deep abject poverty, second oldest of thirteen kids, um, and so my life was. I was a child being raised by a child, but an emotionally needy child, dysfunctional child. And so that caused me to be abused and neglected and in and out of the system. And so when I was 10 years old, I was placed in the same foster home that I was when I was born. That's where I learned the first part of the story and understood that they were my first parents and they wanted to adopt me. And so I was just in and out of the system. And when I became a social worker, my first, when I got my master's in social work, I did Child Protective Services in Anchorage, Alaska. And so I was the person who was making big decisions about whether children should stay with their family or should they come into foster care. And I often went home at the end of the day, wondering if I'd done more harm than good. Had right? I taken a child and placed them with complete strangers. And uh, sometimes those strangers, I wondered if they were much better than the family I just placed because we were always in a crisis. We never had enough foster families. And back then, the philosophy was when in doubt, remove. And so we were moving kids right and left and we overwhelmed the system. And two years after working there, I was investigating foster parents who were accused of abusing some of the kids I'd placed with them. And I said, this is crazy. It's just broken. And I've watched it talk about well reform and, and fixes, and I keep getting hopeful, but nothing really changes. And this thing that was supposed to protect children have become like a family policing
1: agency. And it's not working. Yeah. So it's a wicked problem, with no easy answers. Okay. And but at the
0: same time, like you were talking about, it's and and you use the phrase for for, what was it? The foster care industrial
1: complex is that
2: how you? The child welfare industrial complex.
1: Yeah, child welfare industrial complex for sure. And
0: uh, wow, again, so much that we could dive into. with that
1: account how many homes did you experience like how many placements did you experience in in, in your time in the system
2: yeah so we moved a lot I we we moved 37 different times when I was a kid I wasn't in that many foster homes I was probably in a half a dozen sometimes it was kinship care kind of thing sometimes it was foster care but those are usually, strangely enough, were the safer times in my life. So it, I'm railing against a system that actually probably saved my life. My, I, my mom was put in foster care because in the, she was involved in an incident where there was heavy drinking. And she was drinking while was pregnant with me. So if the state hadn't
1: intervened, I could have you know, been permanently damaged from the alcohol and I
2: was in danger a lot of times throughout my life. So I understand, I think the state has a role to play in protecting children, but the way they care for them once they intervene into that is destroying families and kids at the same
1: time. So we've got to somehow rewind some of that and, and fix the system. I was wow. a
2: foster parent myself. My wife and I, we also became foster parents. So we took the kids into our houses as, as well and often found ourselves at odds with the state.
1: And it's Virginia? Is that where you, yeah?
2: I was a foster parent in, in Kentucky. I was in foster okay. care in Tennessee and in Kentucky. And I'm now in Virginia working in, at an agency. We used to be a children's home. When I came and 2010, it was Patrick Henry Boys and Girls Plantation. Can you imagine the name like that? Seven, seven group homes and house parents and the whole deal. And right. we, find we closed down the children's home. We were probably one of the last orphanages still operating in America in 2010. And now we offer all kinds of alternative services that keep kids out of children's homes
1: and out of foster care. That's what we're trying to do. Uh, So just some things I want to throw out for folks that are listening. And the
0: reason why I asked how many homes you're in, because we have studies now that talked about brain development, right? And like Mm -hmm. you talked about the role that the trauma plays and this critical phase that the brain is going through several critical stages, it's going to experience two spurts of growth that are tremendous, uh, that it's going to carry on and shape that person forevermore. And so we have some studies that show that any kid, not just foster kids, that when they experience multiple moves in, mm-hmm. in that time frame, it, it impacts the way that the brain develops. And so if you tack on things like trauma and abuse of home, neglect, then it, you're compounding. The negative impact that those things have. And so, just kind of, and I'll share kind of my understanding of the concept and not let you uh, agree or disagree with it. But it's the idea that if you're a young person, if you're a young child and you're in community A, and let's say you're in community A all the way up to the point to where you would be going to an elementary school, you're learning how to get accustomed to that community whether you realize it or not. We don't have a community uh-huh. acclimation protocol, but that's what's happening, right? Uh-huh. The streets around the house that you're living in or the, whatever your your living situation is, you know where the playground is, you know, where the, the mini mart is, whatever. So you're getting accustomed to these things, you know, how far you can walk. And then you eventually go to this elementary school. But then if you switch to community B, uh-huh. then you're asking that child to go through the acclimation process all over again, right? And maybe child's there for three or four months and that doesn't work out for whatever reason. Now you go to community C and then you have to do that all all over again, over and over again. And that does not allow a person necessarily to get familiarity to their surroundings, which then helps provide predictability, which then builds the trust and and so, so on and so forth. So that's why I just want to break that concept down that when you have these multiple moves, it can be it can have a negative impact on the person, and maybe forever more. Thoughts on that concept?
2: Yeah, and then there's the just the practical side that every move it is a new school system, and there's huge gaps in your education. Yep. I still struggle today with that. I graduated with very low A scores, a ACT scores, but very high. A scores, adverse childhood experiences scores, trauma yeah. scores, and so there's huge gaps in my education. So yeah, all those moves are part of that. For your listeners who may not be familiar with it, there's a an ACE survey. It's called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey, and you can Google it. and There are ten questions, and it rates the ten things that we know by just good empirical evidence. Is difficult for children to overcome, and that there will be lifelong consequences, social consequences, but also health consequences. And it's things like abuse and neglect, and divorce and food insecurity, and, and a number of those things. So, my A score is nine, right? So, right. <clears throat> but I've often been called the exception to the rule. I have a high A score. Moved to all these places. I, the schools I went to often were poor schools. Grew up in poverty, but I went on and I got a college degree, got two master's degrees, and a CEO of, of an organization. And people tend to say, "Look well, at there, you did it." I, I hate being the exception to the rule because what that does it, it it gives comfort to people that say. you did it then everybody else could and maybe they just just making different choices than you But everything's like on a bell curve right majority of those kids are in the middle of that bell curve and they're not doing well there are a few on the far end of that that come out of that but that's the exception and even the exception i think has some real evidence to show why i'm exception i was place in a foster home for 2 years. My first 2 years were in a very nurturing home. I was not with my mom for the first 2 years. So that development you talked about, very critical time. Yeah. But I there was bonding. There was secure attachments made during that time.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And I think I was rescued early enough in her drinking that there wasn't developmental
0: issues that I could have been born with. Yeah. So that's another thing that's born out in the research and the trauma research and that I'll uh, attribute to Dr. Bruce Perry. If you're familiar with Dr. Perry, Mm -hmm. one of the experts in trauma and child trauma, and just wrote a book with Oprah a a year and a half ago or something like that. But I had the pleasure of being trained by Dr. Perry directly Mm -hmm. uh, at Mm -hmm. least once, maybe twice. But one thing that I learned is exactly what you were talking about, Robert, was that that first year to two years is critical. Meaning that if you had, if you were taken care of well enough, because it's a range, mm-hmm. well enough, mm-hmm. nothing's perfect. But if you were taken care of well enough for those first year to first two years of life, then that is going to set you up well for the rest mm-hmm. of your life. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the inverse is not true. That if. if your first year to two years was not, was far beyond well enough or good enough, Mm -hmm. then it doesn't, it's unfortunately, you can move into a much better setting, scenario, family, whatever it is, after that critical period, and Mm -hmm. you're still up against it, and the ACEs Mm -hmm. is part of that, and Mm -hmm. all of that, but what do you do with that information? I guess, maybe you have an answer, right, in terms of... (laughs) What can we do to ensure that people get the best care possible in that, that first critical stage of life? But something that really impressed upon me when I heard Dr. Perry kind of talk about that and then sifting through by that time, the thousands of kids that I had worked with and
1: mm-hmm.
0: there's, I've seen it, I've lived it, and, and, but I think you're right on the, the, You're the exception. And part of that exception was that you had some good enough care, well enough care in that critical phase of your life. Mm mm-hmm. hey, Have you and, run into uh, that or heard of Dr. Perry before I
2: have? Yes, I have. Yeah. And I would add to that, that the power of mentorship to intervene in a kid's life. And so there were critical times, particularly in my adolescence, when I needed good mentorship, that it was there. It was an informal mentorship. Nobody had signed up, said, I'm going to be this kid's mentor. But I had some coaches or some teachers or a youth pastor. Who were there at critical times? I had a coach who hid me in his basement when the police were chasing me, and I ran to his house and he hid me in the basement. And they knocked on, and said, "Hey, coach, is he there?" And he said, "Nope, not seen him." "You sure, coach?" "Yes, I'm sure." And uh, those cops had played football for coach, and <laughs> I could have been in jail, and that could have changed to the trajectory of my life. But Coach hid me, he, and he and then when the cops are gone and I came up out of the basement, I got a lashing, buddy, I a, a tongue lashing, and uh, but I knew he cared. It was out of love, and so those were some critical times that also helped me be the exception to the rule. So we hear Patrick Eady talk about meaningful relationships as the key to this whole thing. It will not be done by programs and bureaucracies, policies, or regulations. It's got to be meaningful relationships. Those other things are needed, but meaningful relationship is the key.
0: How do you operationalize that? What does that mean? It's a phrase that people will, if you do any kind of investigation or your own research, you're going to see
1: this in the... TYD positive youth development. It's one of, mm-hmm. the, it's one of the pillars.
0: Probably mm-hmm. informed care is going to be there. The Missouri model, all these things. We're going to talk mm-hmm. about that. But what does it actually mean in real time? And what does that mean for you? How do you operationalize that in the work that you've done and the trainings that you do and when you're trying to help people embrace that concept?
1: Sure.
2: It's our vision here that every child is with a thriving family supported by a faithful community. And we actually created what we call Vision 30 in Lynchburg and the four surrounding counties where we operate. We want to see the number of kids in care go down to zero. And so we're investing in all kinds of preventative and other services that hook people up with meaningful relationships like mentorship. We operate Safe Families for Children, which is an alternative to foster care, volunteer system. Yeah, powerful because it really is built on the model of meaningful relationship. We operate the Kinship Navigator Program for our local DSSs, and we train our folks, right? Maybe delivering a bed, but the most important thing for this family is is meaningful relationship. Talk about human capital. Poor families, particularly kids, need human capital for those who have that. We do have counseling centers and we have trauma-informed therapists. But we really want to go more and more upstream. We operate Care Portal. I don't know if you're familiar with Care Portal. I just mentioned, talked about that. We operate a camp for kids from hard places. So all of our summer camp staff are trained in trauma-informed care. Very small camp sizes with a lot of adult supervision. But I I know we may be running out of time, I want to challenge your listeners to one thing. So I've been working on this definition of every child with a thriving family in a faithful community. I've been working on the definitions now. So I decided to try a chat GPT see what artificial intelligence could help me with that. So it helped me develop some things. I said, now, put the five protective factors in the meaning of a thriving family. And it did. And so we worked on this definition. I said, now, What would happen if one generation was raised with thriving families supported by faithful communities? What would happen? And it spit out a whole bunch of health benefits and social benefits and educational benefits, almost instantly. I said, now give me the research on that. And it backed up with the research. And then I asked the question, I said, what would the savings be to a nation of an entire generation was raised with thriving families supported by a faithful community. And it took a little bit and then it came back and it said multiple trillions. And then I asked it to explain and wow. Yeah. And then I said, who would be opposed to such a strategy? And it listed all the professions that you and I have been in and associated with.
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: So we've got to turn this around. We've got to build a cultural ecosystem where kids can flourish,
1: and we're doing everything opposite of that. Right? Now. Yeah. Yeah. Again, so I love that you're showcasing
0: how you use the Chat DPT to help you with that. I think that's a brilliant example of. There's a lot of talk about how terrible it is and whatnot, but I think that's a brilliant example of of how you used it to do some heavy lifting around some, some writing and lining up some concepts there. So you mentioned the five protective factors in thriving families. So what are those factors?
2: Oh, no, yeah, you put me on, a, on the test now. So <laughs> a parental resilience is, is one, right?
1: Social connections. A, a faithful support system understanding of human
2: development, right? Parents often don't know, right? They're not parenting well because they don't know the human development stage. And I know there's a fifth one and I can't think of it right now. Uh, but look up the, yeah, thanks. Look up the five protective factors. Very important. And it's all
0: based on good research, good empirical data. Is there something organic there about supporting basic needs? Yeah,
2: I we've... We're liter- literally, literally have are making communities and neighborhoods unsafe places, and our schools unsafe places for kids And I think we've got to go back and do some of the harder sustainable work that 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 support families. and we've made everything political, we've made everything bureaucratic. We've made everything something that has to be paid for, and that's what we fight about. And uh, so yeah, we, yeah. We, we just got to go back. And I, I don't want to abolish foster care. There, there's an abolitionist movement that wants to abolish foster care like they want to abolish the police. But I do believe we can make it op, obsolete, right? We could build better systems where there's not so many kids that are in care. And those who are in care are in, in more natural environments, like a safe families or like a kinship placement that's supported naturally by volunteers rather than some kind of bureaucratic system.
0: So I, I pulled it up. I had the beauty of it pretty quick on the keyboard. So the fifth one is concrete support for parents. And that's there what it go. says, right? is yes. Making sure that families can meet the basic needs for Food, clothing, and shelter, transportation. So concrete yeah. supports, not just yeah. you know, the program that you might be able to access if you're lucky enough, right? <laughs> yeah. Nice work. We did it together. But so it's a wicked problem though. So again, this is part of the reason why I stepped away from my role in corrections, is because I couldn't do what I'm doing now to the degree that I wanted to, which is connecting with people like you, in order to help smooth out some of the biggest wrinkles that are in the system. So I'll share a burden on my okay. heart for this and then see again, what your experience or take on this is so this piece of chat GPT, giving you these, the output of how many, the cost savings. And it came back in the trillions. Right. So, and again, you're an example of it to a certain degree. Huh. I, I would, I tell people that I worked with hundreds, if not thousands of Young people that were worth millions and millions of dollars, and they look at you like, "What are you talking?" Mm-hmm. About? And I said, well, "For these children that are taken away from at birth, where they're going into a system, and that costs mm-hmm. money every day that a kid is in care costs money. And then, if they behavior mm-hmm. their way out of foster care, right, meaning that uh, foster families aren't able to manage the person anymore, then they go into residential care, and then mm-hmm. that costs." double triple quadruple per day what foster care was costing the system and then they'll go through that system and then again they'll do a behavior then by the time Mm -hmm. they're age in oregon 12 and so 12 is when the youth authority the juvenile justice system then can have jurisdiction over the young person Mm -hmm. younger than 12 they would remain in the child welfare system so then they have a behavior and then they enter in the juvenile justice system, which has added layers of cost. And so by the time I would get them at, I was, I'm was i the end of the road when they would come to McLaren, we're the largest youth facility for boys in the state of Oregon, and they can stay with us till they're age 24. So
1: hmm.
0: if, if they come at 12, that's potentially 12 years that they could stay with us, and hmm. And then in between, like Oregon has tried what I call boutique therapy, where they've actually contracted with an out-of-state kind of high-level, mm-hmm. costing something on the order of tens of thousands do- of dollars per day, and it still didn't work, and, and they come mm-hmm. back or it didn't work. You know what I mean when I say that? Mm-hmm. I say that flippantly, but mm-hmm. uh, And so literally, these kids then, we, the taxpayers have invested millions upon the, of millions of dollars into each one. Then at age 24, what Oregon does is because they we can't keep them past age 24, but then they're beyond, they're almost at the upper edge of that transition age youth phase. And so what I tell people is that if at age 18, there's 100 beds that are available to that young person at age 18, soon as they turn 19, they're six. that's not an exaggeration right Uh the amount of resources that is available to somebody who's in that 17 to 18 year old range is okay i'm not going to say adequate but it's something but then as soon as they cross that they're 19 Uh years old it reduces basically down to nothing and you have to have significant developmental disability or qualify for some of those some of those placements right Uh so what we do with those kids and so our facility is on one of the main highways here in the, in, in the area that runs north and south. It'll go to, if you keep on it, it'll take you to Mexico. And if you keep going north, it'll take you to Canada. And we take them to the curb and we point them north or south. And we say, we'll give them an address that so here's the mission in, in Portland, Oregon, and, or here's the mission in Salem, Oregon, which is tor- towards the south, or Eugene. And we say, good luck. And so we've taken a kid the system has from zero to 24 taxpayers have invested millions of dollars into them and we just throw it away and that's the burden for me and some of these kids are not some of them a lot of them are high school graduates does monday at the office feel like a storm not with microsoft copilot that feeling when copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly it's sunny again
1: And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet,
0: sweet slumber
1: to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind
0: for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com.
1: That's O-L-L-Y dot com.
0: Um, a lot of them have been working in our facility uh, developing what we would call entry-level job skills. But they literally have no place to go. There's no family. They've been Uh raised in the system since day one. And in the 22 years that I've worked in that environment, that same scenario has existed. The only thing that we did to make life better for that kid in that scenario is we gave him a duffel bag that he could carry. Uh Otherwise, we were kicking him to that curb with two trash bags. Uh We We give him two trash bags with all their stuff. And they would have to schlep up and down the highway in trash bags, clear trash, institutional-sized trash bags. So we gave them a duffel bag. And I would always remind that person who was responsible for intake and sorting the, the property and issuing a duffel bag. they said, "Wow, why, why well, they don't need these duffel bags. And I said, whoa, whoa. that is the only way that we've made their life better in the community is that we actually issue a duffel bag when they're going up and down the highway. Anyway, so that's the burden mm-hmm. on, the, on, on, on my soul for... Hmm. How things work in Oregon or don't work. And part of the reason why I stepped away was to be able to dedicate time, energy, and resources to uh, improving that scenario for that type of kid. So, what's your response to that based on my personal story there? Taxpayers
2: will more, most likely continue to pay for that individual, right? He's, that person right. can be homeless. You're in a psychiatric the, facility or prison. Adult prison. Yep. Yep. Okay. So yeah, we will pay for the rest of our life. So we've commoditized the current system commodifies children. Yeah. And the more needy or the more troubled, the more valuable they are. And so, so yeah. there's the motivation to put them on psychotropic meds or and antipressants and
0: and get them onto all these therapies.
1: And in what, fact, and what, you, what you mean right. by
0: that, but people don't, maybe don't hear the code speak that we're talking. I understand it. A, a kid in foster care, the more layers of complexity that are attributed to them, the more money the home will receive for that child, yeah. right? So a yeah. kid that is on psychotropics versus is not actually will raise the bottom line for what's coming into that foster home. And this is where you're talking about the child welfare industrial complex, right? Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: So just
2: think of any kind of commodity. And so we've commodified, and a lot of people are making money on this kid in the more trouble. So the system incentivizes
1: trouble. There's no incentive to fix it. Nobody's paying for prevention.
2: They pay for intervention. And And the interventionists have to have degrees and license. So higher ed is pumping out the social workers and the therapists and the counselors. And so we're all now building on this really trillions of dollars uh, to maintain children as troubled as possible. Yeah. When we are one of the first post-industrial societies here in America, we don't really make things anymore. And so all of, we all make a living either by providing knowledge or information or service and the better paying services, the good middle-class paying services our counselors and social workers and teachers and cops. And and so there's a built-in sense, incentive for things not to be healthy, not to be safe. And so I don't know how we fight against that, but nobody really stops. It's hard to convince a man that he needs to change what he's doing if he's being paid not to understand Mm -hmm. and here where we're at we don't take any government money Uh, we don't yeah because all the money is tied into servicing and treating the problem and so we've got to raise money uh and so the For us, the best use of that money is in prevention. We've we've got to prevent these kids from landing in these places or as early as possible. Intervene as early as possible before real damage is done.
0: Yeah. And again, I've had, again, where have you been my whole life, right? (laughs) When I talk about my vision and being free from government money, because the government money comes with strings attached. Right it'll spin you to do things that really are that ahead of time, aren't going to have an impact on, uh, on a child, but you got to do it in order to maintain the, the holders of the first string. Yeah. I'm with mm-hmm.
1: you a hundred percent on that. And uh, yeah. So Robert, if you could wave a wand
0: <laughs> to, you talked about upstream, right. And mm-hmm. that's a metaphor too that I use all the time. Right. And the, it's the baby in the river story, right? And I I think that's what you're referencing, right? Yes, that, exactly. You, know, you, you have these babies that are coming off this waterfall and they're going into the river. And then you have a bunch of people down here that are fucking babies out and doing CPR and getting them fed and warmed and off. And somebody else comes along and they're saying, hey, come help us. There's these babies oh, in the river. And the person looks, looks around, seeing what's going on and then starts running away from them. Where are you going? You gotta come. How can you not come here and help? He's like, no. You keep doing what you're doing. I'm gonna go up to the top of this waterfall and see who's chucking these babies. Exactly. Exactly. When you said upstream, that's what went in mind. Exactly. Yeah. And so, how do you? How do we turn off the upstream trickle of of these kids that are getting tossed over over the cliff?
1: Let me give you a a second
2: analogy that's related to that. So that river has right. There's all kinds of people now. who built industries all along that river, right? Right. the mining, the commodity that's floating down that river. Yeah. Okay. But there's actually a second river, right? We say no child ever gets to choose their family, right? You might be born into a healthy family and life can be like floating down this lazy gentle river in the summertime. Life's pretty good. Or you might be born in this other river right, it's full of rocks and debris and a quick falling waterfall. And if you make it over that waterfall, you're gonna produce another child just like yourself. The key is no longer to mine that river. It's to build a stream that connects the healthy river with the unhealthy river, right? <clears throat> And the children can't float from the unhealthy river over to the healthy. It's the folks who are over there living their lives in the good river who have to choose to make that connection, right? Through these meaningful relationships.
0: This is the faithful communities part, right? This is the
2: faithful community, right? Who are committed to meaningful relationships, not just providing resources. And I, when I look back at my own life, it was those times that I was plucked out of the river and put over in this healthy river for a little bit, either through foster care or through kind of a mentorship. And I saw how people were living differently. And it made a huge difference. And now my main goal in life was to raise my children in that healthy river, not over in the unhealthy river. Gotcha. So that's what we've got to do, I think. And,
0: but is that still a downstream impact versus... Versus shutting off the flow in the first place.
1: Yeah. If we can, you
2: you cut off the flow by what we say here is you can't rescue children without healing adults. We've got to heal the adults who are having these dysfunctional children. So you got to do two things at one time. You got to get a whole bunch of adults before they start having children or when they start having children who say, I'm committed. I'm going to be the
1: cycle breaker. Oh, I, you're on mute right now, Doc. I can't hear you. Gotcha. I was coughing. by myself. So that connection to the healthy river is <clears throat> bless you, sir. <laughs> sorry, sorry. i having a hard time. We got you all choked up about this subject
0: that connection to the healthy river then is the proverbial killing two birds with one stone yes love it love it because you're helping that because you're right that again i worked for 22 years in youth correction so i was there long enough to see what you're talking about i a kid that i had on the very beginning of my career is now having kids that are in the system and <laughs> so yeah so Love what you're saying. There is that part of of uh, shutting the flow off is helping people not do the same thing in their own life for their own yeah. children. Yeah. So that's
2: we have a program here we call Homes of Hope, and so these are for young moms who have small children who have either lost their children to to child welfare or who are at risk of that, or CPS has intervened and this mom now has a choice. They can come and live in our home that we provide for her and her children. So instead of separating her children, her from her children, her and her children come from home and we guarantee that they're safe during this period. And so then we're trying to help this mom rebuild a life so that her children are safe. And one of the things we do
1: is we have them take the ACE survey. And then we talk about the power of the aces,
2: and then she starts recognizing that she herself has suffered from this, and she starts saying, "I don't want the, I don't want this to happen for my child." So then we introduce them to the five protective factors and a whole bunch of things, so it starts clicking, and she can decide. Right now is the time that I either got to make a choice for my own children. It's too late for her to rewind her past, but she can get on a path through healing. And in her own healing, will provide a future for her children. Yeah, it's a tough road to hold for these moms, but many of them are making that good choice.
1: Yeah, and not everybody in that predicament is accepts the help. In it, or this, the faithful community's part of it is meaning that that
0: one of them probably one of the most predominant character traits of somebody who's in this situation is being very distrustful of other people Hmm. and i think Mm -hmm. again in my experience was i would see lots of people that would come into the work with this belief this desire to, to be helpful and a lot of them couldn't get over the hump of Just because you want to be helpful doesn't mean the person on the other side of you is going to automatically see you and accept you as being a good person or helpful because their whole life has taught them the exact opposite. And So there's this testing out period that happens. Again, I'm getting more youth corrections oriented, but there's this feeling out process and oftentimes it's full
1: of nastiness and negativity right? because this person is let me throw this at you and see if that's all
0: it takes for you to run away from me. Right. And mm-hmm. that's what happened all every other time. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. you got to be able to persevere through some of that in order to establish this trust. Right. And this idea that you are a faithful person. And mm-hmm.
1: uh, well, we found
0: that
2: the families, the moms particularly who will place their children and save families for children versus, because she's voluntarily doing that. And she knows the family is voluntarily taking them. They're not getting paid right. by the state. They're a volunteer. And she never loses control. And the family, right, the, there's a whole system around that family that is taking the child. And there's a system around that mom who's placed the child. And so everybody has the same goal. And that's why it's a child in safe families for children it stays for less than 45 days. Right. And usually goes back to a healthier situation. But what we found is that sometimes when mom relapses a little bit, she seeks out that couple who took her children and develop a relationship because it's safer than calling social services or waiting right. for social services to come knocking on the door. And that's what, so the moms at our homes of hope, same thing. They're voluntarily coming and maybe under the threat or the concern of social services, but they're still in charge. They don't lose custody of their child if they're in the home with us. And we're not getting paid by anybody. She's not paying us, state's not paying us. We're doing it voluntarily. So there's something powerful in that volunteer relationship, isn't it? Yeah. It's much more meaningful for people.
0: Still hard sometimes for them to trust. Absolutely. But it's a little bit easier. Yeah. And again, just to I, I'm familiar with safe families. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is like I said, a voluntary organization that's supposed to fill that gap that not everybody mm-hmm. needs to be removed from the home and taken into foster care or out-of-home placements that are entrenched in the system. And so safe mm-hmm. families is, is that stop gap. And yes. the way that I've seen it used is for shorter stints, right? Yes. That it, whatever's going on in the family dynamic, is, it's good reason to believe it's, it's going to be short-lived. And so safe families can come in, provide the care and support that's needed. And then mom and or dad get back in place and then, then the family can reunite. And mm-hmm. I, one case that I was familiar with, it was, uh, the young person was halfway through their junior year mm-hmm. and it was some, it, I, whatever the choice was, was foster care or move out of state to a different, mm-hmm. a different family member. Or remain in place, graduate in the community in a safe family. And that's what was able to happen. And it was just a great story all the way around yes. the, the yeah. outcomes around that. So, just for folks to know what the role that mm-hmm. safe families play it's that stop gap between at a home placement, right? Because mm-hmm. the chances of, of things going wrong and having long term negative impact when they go into the system you know, are much higher, in my experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You may not know, but one of our, our governors, Ted Kulongoski, was a product of the foster care system. Oh. Yeah. And so he's the one that actually helped when he was attorney general to, to draft up the Oregon youth authority as a, as an agency. And then also when he was in, in his term as governor, the foster care system is plagued with problems. And you still have kids that are being abused in all sense mm-hmm. of the term, physically, mm-hmm. sexually, kids that are being not fed and clothed and kept well. And he, mm-hmm. he became outraged at that and mm-hmm. did what he could while he was in, in office to to turn that around. But it's a, like I said, it's a big, hairy problem and it's a, big, it's a big barge. And how do you turn a barge around in
1: a short period of time? It's just, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's difficult.
0: Yes. Yeah. So you don't take any government money. You, so you're raising money on your own. So what does that look like? How do you raise money to, to support what you're doing?
1: <laughs> Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba.
2: Early on, that was one of the commitments of the founders of this. And so we're over 60 years old now. And So we've been exercising our money raising skills for a long time, rather than depending on the government and the pendulum swings that often happen from that. And we've been able to build a nice endowment over the years. And right now, the endowment covers all administrative expenses. So when we go out and raise money we say you're not they're not paying for my salary they're not paying for even fundraiser salary or, or maintenance or administrative costs they may be helping send a kid to camp or they're helping support the mom who's in this homes of hope or they may be subsidizing a counseling session those kinds of things and so that makes it easier to raise a dollar when we have that so we don't turn anybody away for an inability to pay for services We don't take government funding and we're, we've committed to the administration costs cannot outpace what our endowment can support. And we are committed to staying more and more in the prevention space, the kind of the upstream space, and we really are seeing our role of now becoming really equippers of the community there's no way we can do it all, nor should we try. So let's start partnering with other agencies. So we just entered a collaborative partnership with a mentoring program, and we're paying $75,000 of their administration costs, so they don't have to turn around and raise that. And so if we can build capacity in these groups that are in that prevention space or really grassroots in the neighborhoods, the toughest neighborhoods, that's where we need to be put, putting our money rather than us coming in artificially and trying to be the savior, right? We don't want to play the government because we don't like what the government, how the government does. It. So we're more and more into that space and investing in people who are already out there
1: doing good things. Yeah, love it. Absolutely. I, I can keep talking. We're at <laughs> about the hour mark, but...
0: I think we'll wind it down here, and maybe we'll do round two or
1: because we could continue on this. We did, we skip over the surface of aces and that. And
0: you have you're an author too, so I, I want you to be able to talk about the books that you've written, or maybe the book that you're focused on right now.
2: Yeah. So that anybody would like to ask for a copy of it's uh, called uh, Rescuing Children. Healing Adults, uh, the story of one orphan, one orphanage, and the dream to make foster care obsolete. And it just tells the story of how we took this old children's home, which was built on the orphanage model, and doing what we're doing today, and tells a little bit about my own story in that, and starts to begin the laying out the dream of what would it look like if every child was with a thriving family supported by a faithful community. And so all they have to do is uh, reach out to me at our day rday at patrickhenry.org and we'll send them a complimentary uh, copy for right tuning in and listening today
0: absolutely if folks want to buy that book though because they're they hear your message and they're compelled to contribute in a meaningful way where can they find the book if they want to purchase they it They can't buy it they can't they can't
2: but they can i can send buy- two of them and, and if they want to donate back to us that would be wonderful and there, there's information in the book on how to do that
0: Awesome. Love that. I am plugged into several communities that I know will hear this and they are going to want to help and they're going to want to help financially. And we'll make sure that we have a a clear enough path for people to do that should they want to, to contribute to what you've got going on there. All right. Robert, appreciate you spending an hour with me. And before we wrap it up, though, to the person who's listening to this show, and they understand better the need maybe they have already had their own experience um, and they feel compelled to help Um, one way is to get the book Uh, what can the average person do to help with the thriving families faithful Mm -hmm. communities concept and model what can the average person do
2: Uh, the first commitment is to be a a part of a thriving family, myself, right? If they had a family or they're part of that family, do the hard work. If it requires therapy or, or whatever, be committed to be that person that says, I, it's, it's going to start with me. Secondly, be a mentor,
1: right.
2: be engaged, volunteer at, at an agency, show up at where kids are and say, How can I help? Be a care portal responder find a if care portal is in your area find out to, how to be a part of that and say i'll be one of those people who can, will respond with real resources to family right at the time of their need and then make a commitment to stay plugged in if that family is open to that yeah, yeah just be a decent human being at starts of that
0: yeah, and I love what you said, start with yourself, right? Because yeah, if, right. if you're not squared away, you probably aren't going to be helpful to very many other people. So again, this is a mindset podcast. I'm not going to ask you the standard mindset question, but there are a lot of people who will discount their ability to, to have an impact, right? And so they did, they heard you say, be a mentor. And I guarantee you there's a, a slice of, of this audience that's going to say, oh, I don't have anything to offer. Hmm. What, what would you say to them?
2: Yeah. Oh, I. I would say capacity is a state of mind. So if you you feel like you can't because you don't have the capacity, that's a mindset problem. You do have capacity. If you have the capacity to have a relationship with another human being, you have the capacity
0: to make a difference. Love it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: One of my old bosses says the two things that you need is to um, show up and give a damn. (laughs)
2: That's right. That's the second one that we have a hard time convincing. To give a damn. Yeah,
0: that's right. That's right. Robert, appreciate you. Appreciate the work that you're doing. And hopefully we can continue to collaborate and connect and work together because it it takes collaboration and it takes a a network of like-minded people to move something Mm -hmm. like this. This is a big boulder that we're trying to push uphill. It is. uh, Amen. Yeah. Take care, my friend. Thank you so much, sir. Bye-bye. That was Robert Day and his story, his mission. His purpose in this life really hit home with me, given the way that I spent 20 years in a career working with young people that were on the other side of foster care. So I'm super grateful that I got the opportunity to spend some time with Robert. I hope his story inspired you. I hope his story provided some hope and comfort. If your life somehow has crossed paths with the foster care system. Robert has a generous offer for you that tuned into this episode of the Upgraded Life podcast. And he's willing to send you a copy of his book. And the title of that book is Rescuing Children, Healthy Adults, The Story of One Orphan, One Orphanage, and a Dream to Make Foster Care Obsolete. So if you want a copy of that book, send an email to him. And I'll put that email in the show notes and he'll give you a signed copy. That's pretty generous. And here's what I would ask in in return. If you take him up on that offer, uh, I see that his book is listed on Amazon. Uh, Go there and give him a five-star review, right? Because that review then helps the algorithm at Amazon push that book up to the top and helps him get his message out there. And a message that's dedicated to helping children and helping communities do better by children. Is a message worth spreading far and wide. As always, I want to offer a huge thanks to my listeners. If you find this episode of the Upgraded Life Podcast helpful, do all the things that you know how to do. Leave it a five-star review. uh, Give it a thumbs up. Whatever you can do, wherever you're listening to this episode, uh, give it some love on the socials. That just helps me, helps the algorithm, helps the powers that be to let the world know that this is a valuable resource for people. As always, I have some special offers for folks, and particularly you listeners of the Upgraded Life podcast. You know that I've been helping men with uh, destructive anger. I've been helping them to develop the skills necessary in order to get complete control over anger. So if you're a man and you're listening to this and you've been given an ultimatum, get this fixed or else. uh, Don't waste any time and don't work with somebody who isn't an expert. I'm going to bring you expert intervention using time tested and proven skills and tools to help you get complete control of your anger. You can find all that information about my anger resolution program in the show notes below. I've been able to show more and more people how to boost their education about all things blockchain, all things Bitcoin. I have two e-courses and a community to support your knowledge in those areas. If you're starting from zero knowledge, that's okay. Uh, My crypto 101 course will help you get up to speed. If you are beyond Crypto 101 and you want to learn how to start investing in crypto, then my Crypto 201 course is going to be for you. Those are under the brand, The Ultimate Crypto Startup. And again, you can find the links to those programs in the show notes below. Now I want to talk to you about one of the most exciting opportunities that I have ever been able to offer the people in my audience, in my community, those people that follow me. So here it is. I'd say over the last three to four years, I've been plugged into a particular community and this community has grown and evolved over time. And it has now gotten to the place to where I am able to help onboard people into this community. Why would you want to be part of this community? Let me tell you. If you've been tracking or following me over the last handful of years, you probably have asked the question, how does Nick do all this stuff? How did he figure out how to launch a podcast? How does he run social media channels? How did he convert his income from a traditional nine-to-five job to a non-standard online business revenue platform where I get to work when I want and however much I want, depending on what the need is at the time? Well, I'm here to tell you I didn't do it all on my own. Of course, I had to take my own action. I had to put in my own effort. But I've been supported by a community for the last handful of years, and without that community, I would have not been able to do any of the things that I'm doing right now. That community is known as the Guardian Academy, and the Guardian Academy has everything that anybody needs to upgrade their life and to live the life that they truly want. The Guardian Academy offers an online community that you have access to 24-7. They offer weekly calls with true masters in all sorts of disciplines, ranging from real estate to human development to creating online revenue streams, you name it. Anything that has to do with humans being better humans, the Guardian Academy has something to offer you. When you're a member of the Guardian Academy, you also have access to live events that happen several times a year. So here's my offer. I only have the capacity to help maybe about five people join the Guardian Academy because it will take a partnership in order to meet all of the requirements. It's not a simple buy your way in, join, and get started. You have to put in some work and I'm offering to help you do the work so that you can be a full-fledged member of the Guardian Academy. So if you're interested in that and you want to know more about how to get the process started, there'll be a link in the show notes below, or you could go to the website www.tgaportal.com. There'll be a couple videos there for you to watch. And then if you're still interested, fill out the form and that'll get you on my email list, and I'll be sure to reach out to you and give you all the information that you need. Again, I only have capacity to work with about five people to join the Guardian Academy, with me being the guide. So if you have any interest at all in that, I would say don't delay. Fill out that form, let me know that you're interested, because it's going to be the first five. And after that, I don't know. I may not ever do it again, uh, but I am going to. Be committed to five people who want to join the Agardian Academy. I'll leave you here with another final thank you for being in my audience. Thank you for listening to the Upgraded Life Podcast. This is me, Dr. Nick Sotello, urging you to do something today that will upgrade your life. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Upgraded Life Podcast. This show doesn't exist without you, the listeners, and so I appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to show your appreciation back to me and to this podcast, there's a couple of ways to do that. One way is to be subscribed to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are an Apple user, you can go over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five star review. All of those things help. And now I want to talk about two projects that I have going that are out there that I think are very important if you're the right person for them. So the first project is my anger resolution program, and this is for men, fathers, that own businesses that have anger that's completely out of control. And if that's you, I have developed a program specifically for that so that you can get complete control of your anger, that you can rebuild the relationship with your loved ones, and that you can make your business more profitable. That is all contained in my Anger Resolution program. If you want the info about that, check out the show notes, and there will be a link there for you for Anger Resolution. The other project that I have going, which is equally as important in my mind, and it's a lot of fun, is based around blockchain and cryptocurrency education. So if you've listened to this podcast this year in 2023, you will have heard that several of them have focused on cryptocurrency. And that's not by accident. That's been a big part of my uh, free time, my extra time in my financial strategy uh, over the last uh, 18 months or so. So I have founded, together with some partners, an organization called The Ultimate Crypto Startup, and we offer crypto education. Our Crypto 101 course is completely free, and it is designed for the person who knows traditional finance, and they're curious about the world of decentralized finance. So if that's you, but you, you don't even know what a Bitcoin is, you don't even know what blockchain is, or how blockchain technology works... Crypto 101 is exactly what you need to build that knowledge into you. So that way you can look at the world of decentralized finance from an informed vantage point. So Crypto 101, if you want info on that, again, look in the show notes and you will find the link for that course. All right, my listeners to the Upgraded Life podcast, I'm going to sign off for now and I'm going to urge you to do something as soon as this show is done to upgrade your life to boost your mindset. Take action today.